Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fan tabulous episode of the take it easy podcast happy happy thursday everybody i hope y'all are having an amazing fan tabulous day i mentioned back on monday that we were teasing our uh, u.s open golf thoughts since we were out on the links at Torrey pines back on sunday and now we are a game seven the sixers hawks removed a magical what if Wednesday return and a crazy Tuesday after uh, I forgot. What were we talking about on Tuesday? Anyways, uh, the point being that, oh, of course, Morgan from Australia celebrating our Hawks victory. Anyways, so after all of that magical madness, we have finally our 33 U.S. Open thoughts. We will get to that in a little bit. Why did I pick 33? It's a random number, but we'll get to that in a little bit later on. Where I want to start today, and we'll get to this crazy Hawks and Bucks game one, which, just as a quick side note, they absolutely had to have that one. The Atlanta Hawks did. I should have mentioned that off the bat. If Trey Young is going to shoot 34 shots and score a career high 48 points in Milwaukee, and the Bucks were going to walk out with a win in that one, call it a sweep, series over. Hawks had to have that one. They get it. Maybe they're going to need another nuclear Trey Young performance to stay in this series with the Bucks, but the fact that they won Game One in Milwaukee and Trey Young came up that clutch—sign of a superstar, baby. And we talked about it with Luka Doncic. Only four times in the last thirty years has a twenty-two, twenty-three-year-old led a team to the NBA Finals. It is Tim Duncan, nineteen ninety-nine; Shaquille O'Neal, nineteen ninety-five; LeBron James, two thousand seven. And Kevin Durant, 2012, for the most or the four most talented prospects of the last 20, or I'm sorry, of the last 30 years, spanning six generations of basketball players. Only four have been the most talented players. We thought it was going to be Luca, but here we are with Trey Young, 48 points, leading the Hawks, one game closer towards that NBA Finals, and at the very least, preventing this series from being a total sweep domination by the Milwaukee Bucks, which the Bucks should still win the series. I was joking about this on Twitter with Morgan from Australia that we celebrate now because this means the Hawks will only lose in six games, barring a cataclysmic collapse by the Milwaukee Bucks, similar to what happened to the 76ers. Because remember, we talked about the 76ers had a, or the Hawks had a one in 700 chance of beating the 76ers when the Sixers were up 18 points in the, in game four, 85% chance of winning and up 26 in the fourth quarter against the Hawks in game five. They were 99.1% chance of winning, one in 700 chance that the Hawks would come back from both of those and win the series in seven. And the Bucks are better than the, the 76ers. So I see no scenario where the Hawks end up winning the series, but their only way to prevent a sweep was by winning that game one with Trey Young shooting 34 shots and scoring 48 damn points for the Hawks. We'll get to that more in a little bit, but where I wanted to start before rambling for four minutes 
was my San Diego Padres. Because there's a lot going on in baseball right now that's not the greatest publicity from... Basically, we saw Max Scherzer get angry and start unbelting, uh, undoing his belt to check for uh, foreign substances. Uh, Sergio Romo pulled down his pants to have someone check his foreign substance out of anger or check. Wow, that was weird phrasing. Jesus Christ. Uh, To check for foreign substances, he pulled down his pants. Not as weird as I'd like to go here. So sooner or later, we're just going to have mandatory ass checks. We're just going to start searching the assholes on national television of professional baseball players. But baseball is getting a lot of bad publicity lately. And you know what is good publicity for baseball? Talking about its biggest and best rivalry, the Los Angeles Dodgers versus my hometown 619 stand-up San Diego Padres. Because the Padres just wrapped up Dodgers week. They ended up winning the first two games of the series, and the Padres ended up setting a pace where now they are ahead of the Dodgers the entire way. They are going to be ahead of the Los Angeles Dodgers in the win-loss column halfway through their season series. They play 19 games, they're uh, 10 through, and the Padres are two games better than the Dodgers through those games. And this was an important part for the Padres because you look at the Dodgers roster and you look at the Padres roster when healthy on paper, and I think most people would agree that the Padres roster is a lesser roster than the Dodgers. Now, of course, uh, there's an interesting situation where the Padres end up... The Padres might end up with a better record, and right now the Dodgers and Padres are scheduled to play in the wild card, but that might be just a byproduct of Cody Bellinger's been out for a bunch of the season so far. Corey Seager has been out for a few months. Um... We've had injuries so far this season to uh, not Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts has just played poorly so far this season. They had uh, Dustin May, Ginger Guard, gone for the season. Um, Justin Turner battled injuries. Will Smith battled injuries early on in the season. So the Dodgers have just had a rotating group of Zach McKinstries coming in and out of that lineup. That Now their depth is kind of thinned out a bit because now they've lost... Uh, Jock Peterson, and they've lost Kike Hernandez, guys who were staples for the last five or six years of division titles for the Dodgers. And so the Dodgers on paper are not the same Dodgers that was at the beginning of the year, or even when we had those two epic series between the Padres and the Dodgers back in April. But it doesn't make it any more or less intense of a rivalry. I'll be honest, basketball, hockey, they've kind of consumed my focus for the past few days. And by the way, speaking of hockey real quick, let me just give an ultimate commence to those New York Islanders because the Islanders went from down to the Islander or they went, they were down against the lightning. They tied it up in the third period with 20 minutes left to go in their season, tied it up in the third period, win in overtime, go to a game seven in Tampa Bay going to be an epic winner go home game seven that we will talk about in extensiveness on the podcast come friday but it was an epic finish for the new york islanders uh but back to the padres point is that basketball hockey they've kind of consumed my focus and baseball has their whole scandal going on which is kind of a scandal but not a scandal and maybe a cheating scandal but not exactly a cheating scandal and 
you know what? This Padres Dodgers series was a great way to bring all of that together with strip checks for foreign substances and everything going on. The Dodgers and Padres are still in an epic duel. And even though you don't have all the pieces there for the Padres, you have most of the pieces. They've been remarkably healthy for most of the season so far, except for that one weird bout of COVID where they still ran off like six wins in a row. Um, the Padres and the Dodgers are still the premier rivalry, still on paper, you could argue the two best rosters in baseball, although the Houston Astros have finally started progressing to the mean after a tough start to the season. They're going to be incredible. I saw that Mattress Mac dude who um, makes a bunch of gigantic sports bets is trying to win $50 million on the Astros winning the World Series. He's from Houston. That is not a great way to spend your money because as much as I love the Astros, Astros are not winning the World Series this year. They might because in the American League, now that I think about it, there's not really a ton of great teams like Tampa's back again. The Yankees will get better. Boston should regress to the mean a little bit. The White Sox don't necessarily look as good as they seem to be. So maybe Houston's got a chance because there's just not a lot of great teams in the American League. But I wouldn't be willing to bet two to five million dollars on the Houston Astros to win the World Series. I'm just not that confident right now. So the Padres and Dodgers series was excellent. You had Jake Cronenworth going bonkers for the Padres and Manny Machado hitting homers off Trevor Bauer that just got everyone excited because Trevor Bauer just doesn't know how to face Manny Machado. And the pot for the Padres, it's like a big deal because I've been in San Diego. I've gone to a couple of these games and it's just like it's a whole nother world at these Padres games recently and it's full capacity and all that stuff. But it's like a whole nother world that I've never experienced because I've never been with a good team in San Diego. It's been it's been fun to see all around and the Padres are giving me reason for hope and the Dodgers series are always intense. This one maybe wasn't as intense as the first few. Cause it's kind of the dull part of the season in baseball. They don't play again until September. Or I'm sorry. I think they play in one time in August, but then they don't play until really late in the season again. So you just get one chance to acknowledge the epic Dodgers week. And this would be that week to talk about the San Diego Padres. Shout out to the 619, Jake Cronenworth, Fernando Tatis Jr., who is leading the league in home runs right now, despite the fact he's only played in about 75% of the possible games. And uh, Manny Machado and Yu Darvish, Blake Snell, all them boys out there for the San Diego Padres. We got ourselves a good team and a nice little win streak going on that may or may not be snapped by the Dodgers. All right, let's talk a little bit more about this Hawks and Bucks game one, which to be honest, I was perfectly content to just skip over this game. Um, but the Hawks have made this a series now. And, and I was kind of transparent at the start, but maybe maybe not as much. I don't see any scenario where the Milwaukee Bucks lose this series. I mentioned it a little bit earlier on. There was a one in 700 chance that the Hawks are here based on the fact that the 76ers blew two catastrophic leads and blew a game seven that they probably should have won. And, and we universally kind of agree the Bucks are better than the Atlanta Hawks. There's not really a team left that I think could really, really knock out the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, the Suns are probably the closest to it because they've been remarkably healthy and, and Kawhi Leonard's obviously a difficult case, but for the Milwaukee Bucks, they they should win this series. It would be just 
be just pathetic if they don't win this series. And to be honest, this is kind of like you've survived the toughest test. You got the good break of Brooklyn's injuries. You've had remarkably good health. Your five best players, um, PJ Tucker, Brooke Lopez, Giannis, Chris Middleton, and, and Drew Holiday have all remained healthy. Obviously, they lost DiVincenzo, but you know they, they've they've been quite healthy on the other side of it. But uh, the the Milwaukee Bucks really they got picked apart by Trey Young. And to be honest, this is the weird thing about Trey Young's game. We talked about it with the the two for twenty game that ended up being like five for twenty three at the end. But Trey Young shot less than twenty five percent from the field. And they still were able to win because of like Kevin Herter performances and John Collins and, and Clint Capella, which we talked about with Morgan from Australia on Monday. But this is the weird thing about Trey Young's game is that some nights he's going to be on, some nights he's going to be off. And the high usage rate for Trey Young means the team's going to be slightly worse, especially when Trey Young isn't shooting 50% from the field like he was in game one for the Atlanta Hawks, as well as shooting. Sorry, as well as shooting, uh, well, really about 33% from the three point line, uh, which is less than, than ideal for the Hawks and also getting 10 free throws in the game uh, or making 10 free throws. He shot 12, but made 10. Uh, it, it's a great it was Trey Young picking apart Brooke Lopez on screens all the way through the game, which I've been and I've been very adamant on the leave Brooke Lopez on the floor camp. Um, because Milwaukee doesn't exactly have the depth to counter what the uh, what the Hawks do, where they just switch Trey Young onto Brooke Lopez, and Brooke Lopez stays back, and Young either fires from three or shoots a floater from the free throw line because Brooke Lopez backs up into the paint, um, and, they'll, and they'll live with that. To be honest, if Trey Young isn't making those shots, and the rest of the Hawks are off like they were in the first game. And the Bucs had a great chance to win this game, despite Trey Young going for obviously 48 points and being like a career game for Trey Young. You know, Middleton, rough game. Most of their shooting came from those guys, like Holiday, 25 shots, Giannis, 25 shots, Middleton, 23 shots. Middleton shot 0 for 9 from the three-point line in that game. And yet the the, the Bucs were like, could have won the game with Trey Young going for 48, Middleton going 0 for 9. Still were right in it at the very end and came down to one shot that Middleton missed. And Middleton will progress to the mean as just like Trey Young will regress to the mean. It's the reason why I would bet I will doom doom lock it in. The Milwaukee Bucks will win game two against the Atlanta Hawks. Like it's just going to be a regression and a progression and not having three go to scorers on the Atlanta Hawks. They just have one go-to score. And that one go-to score took 34 shots, shot at a normal to higher rate. He hit 50% of his shots from the field while only shooting 33%. So he was working it inside and hitting floaters from the free throw line, him being Trey Young, of course. And the Atlanta Hawks still almost dropped the game. So the Bucks are still firmly in control because the Bucks are just a better team than the Atlanta Hawks. They've got three guys who you can go to in situations and, Drew Holt, maybe when Chris Middleton now shoots 0 for 9, it's not the end of the world for the Bucs. Why? Because Drew Holiday can shoot 56% from the field and hit five three-pointers. Um, and you know what? Maybe you'll get a little bit of production from Biscuits and Gravy. And this is the new nickname I have for Pat Connaughton and Bryn Forbes because Bryn Forbes is gravy, where you're not expecting anything from him, but any shot that he gives you, it's like gravy right on top. It, you're not expecting the gravy, 
the turkey, the mashed potatoes, they're good without the gravy, but gravy just adds a nice little touch to it. So Bryn Forbes is like gravy. Anytime he can get you that one three pointer at the end of the game, like he did to give the Hawks or I'm sorry to cut the Hawks lead from four to one with like three minutes left in the game. Anytime he can give you that one shot, he becomes gravy. And Pat Connaughton is his dynamic duo where he gets to be biscuits. Why? Because biscuits and gravy go together. So Pat Connaughton gets to be biscuits. Bryn Forbes gets to be gravy. Pat Connaughton, you don't expect anything from him, but in 29 minutes, he got four points and threw up an air ball with a one-point game with 20 seconds left, just threw up a straight air ball for the Milwaukee Bucks. Because when it's game on the line, you've got three go-to guys in ISO, Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, and Giannis. And yes, Chris Middleton was playing absolutely poorly in game one shot over nine from the three-point line had 15 points on 23 shots just terrible terrible game Devin Booker took like 28 shots yesterday and had 20 points and that was just an awful awful game this was even worse from Chris Middleton so just a terrible game from Chris Middleton and yet the Bucks still had him as a go-to scorer they had did Chris Middleton won them game seven against the Brooklyn Nets. Of course, he's still a go-to scorer and he doesn't come through in that one. And Drew Holiday ends up being awesome. He's a go-to scorer now, unlike Bledsoe. And of course, you have Giannis, who's bigger, stronger, faster, gets to the rim better than everyone else. And you let Biscuits, Pat Connaughton, shoot your game winner. To be honest, the Hawks should have won that game all the way through. And they got a nice little gift at the end that biscuits and gravy ended up taking some shots for the Milwaukee Bucks. And maybe they would have gotten some gravy if the shots had gone in, but not to be the case for the Milwaukee Bucks. And you know what? I'm starting to understand the case for taking Brooke Lopez off the floor because they it was the same thing that the Clippers did to the Jazz where they just switched Terrence Mann on Rudy Gobert and let him keep shooting. Hawks did the same thing to the Bucks, And with one scorer compared to the Bucks three, and the fact that the Bucks three scorers still ended up with 33, 34, 15, those add up to 80, 82 points between the three of them. Even the 48 points from Trey Young was just enough to get them through the series. And of course, a nice game from John Collins, where he just kept catching oop after oop after oop from Trey Young because they had to pull Brooke Lopez out. And all of a sudden, there's. John Collins every time you do it. So I understand the case now for benching Brooke Lopez because the Hawks are going to keep picking that apart. I think where the Bucks will be okay is that John uh, Trey Young will regress to the mean. He won't play as well as he did in game one. At least it's not. It's possible. Like one game doesn't determine the results of the other, but over a long enough sample size, he'll regress to the mean. And Chris Middleton should improve, maybe not in game two, but across a full six, seven game series, he should look closer to what we thought he would, unless Chris Middleton's just going to fall apart like Ben Simmons or Joe Harris should be okay. So I would lock in the bucks at any number, um, assuming that they can promise me that biscuits and gravy will stop shooting those buckets at the end of the game. Those big time down one point with 30 seconds left shots don't keep going to Biscuits Pat Connaughton and Gravy Bryn Forbes. So I teased this segment a little bit yesterday, 
but on Sunday, and I was totally prepared to talk about this, and then we got a magical 76ers-Hawks result that could create fantastic content out of a podcast. And so after teasing it for two days, I spent my Sunday seven hours long hanging out at Torrey Pines Golf Course for the final round of the U.S. Open. It was one of the coolest experiences I've had, right up there with the final four and you know, going to see the Padres hit a walk-off home run. One of the coolest experiences I've had. I've never been to a golf tournament before and seeing the end with every with a major nonetheless and only 10,000 people in the crowd, which I'm glad it wasn't 290,000 like it was when Tiger Woods won in 2008, but still 10, 15,000 people. Technically capacity was 15,000, but I don't think it was that many. Ends up creating a magical golf experience. And with that... Let us unleash my 33 thoughts on the U.S. Open. Why did I pick 33? Because it's a very, very random number. And that's how many I've got. So I think we'll see how far we get. Number one, even when it's an extremely cloudy day in San Diego, you can still very much get sunburned. As I learned, without my gator mask or hat or sunglasses or nothing, you can very much get sunburned. Two, you know it's going to be a good day when you arrive at 9.30 and you walk right into the 12th hole and there is Phil Mickelson. When you find the Phil Mickelson crowd right before you even get a chance to process everything going on. And that's the first hole that you see. You know it's going to be a good day. Phil Mickelson then proceeded to bogey the next hole. Three, if the Phil Mickelson crowd is going to show up extremely early and get your money's worth on those tickets and follow him around for an entire day when he's plus eight, with a guy who I think was named Sug, but I don't remember exactly. At the very least, don't be the guy who heckles Phil Mickelson on the 13th hole when he's plus eight on the tournament and just wants to finish and go home. You didn't get your magical Phil Mickelson run, but commence to the other thousand people who showed up just to watch Phil Mickelson at about 9.30 in the morning, three hours before the leaders would tee off. Applaud to you. Four. After completing your Phil Mickelson tour, your obligated Phil Mickelson tour, you end up bouncing around to some Lee Westwood here and look over there and it's Joaquin Neiman. Just some little names that you kind of remember across the tour. You see a Brian Harmon over here, which by the way, side note, Brian Harmon is a lefty golfer from Europe who's about five foot ten, and his caddy is like six foot eight. It's absolutely fantastic. He's just this guy who with a giant caddy where Harmon is probably, you know, average male height. He's not tall at all, but also these golfers are really tall, so it changes the math up quite a bit on what you're watching. And you see Brian Harmon who is not that tall, standing next to his caddy, and he barely makes it to his shoulders. 
So you kind of bounce around, you see those people, you camp out on the fifth hill at Torrey Pines, you can see the fifth hole, the third hole, and hear the second hole all at once. It's a great place to camp out for the tournament. And uh, yeah, you just get some names mixed in there. Five. I don't know how many of you know Adam Scott, the golfer, but one of my biggest takeaways, and I literally have it written down in my notebook, one of my biggest takeaways from the entire tournament not game see or tournament ceiling putts and screaming thousands of fans. No, it was that Adam Scott has a cake of an ass. Like Adam Scott just straight works it on glute day. Like Adam Scott is just thick with a C, a K, and maybe even a Q mixed in there. Just a straight cake on my man, Adam Scott, rivaled only by Larry Fitzgerald in the NFL, who has grandmothers come up to him in malls and pinch him on the butt. Only rivaling to Larry Fitzgerald is the cake of an ass that Adam Scott had. Six. One of my favorite moments, and this was just a totally impromptu moment while watching Adam Scott, was turning around to the sixth fairway and seeing this guy named Richard Bland. And Richard Bland had been an awesome story. He's 48 years old and only in golf and for some reason the NFL can a 48-year-old compete at the highest levels of the sport. This guy started 472 tournaments on the European Tour, never won a start, then won the European Masters. And for, Think about that. To be on the European Tour for 25 years, first started in 1996, never win a tournament, but stuck with it for 25 years, despite never winning a tournament. Won the European Masters, made it to the PGA, made it to the US Open as a qualifier tournament. And he was winning the tournament after the second day. He was tied for the lead. He was in the last group going into Thursday and he, or on a Saturday, and he just shot terribly and fell off. But, anyways, so this Richard Bland guy is walking down the fairway after his sixth hole, and his caddy, which is just an old Englishman, just an old guy from England, caddying an even younger old guy from England, 48 years old, and he's showing up at his first U.S. Open. His caddy just straight rips a heater, just grabs a cigarette, just straight rips a heater on the seventh fairway. I'm sorry, on the sixth fairway at the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines. And you know what? I expect nothing less from the caddy of a 48-year-old Englishman named Richard Bland than for his caddy, who is probably could be his dad, like in his 60s, just straight ripping a heater right on the sixth fairway as they walk up to go hit a ball. I really wish he had been in the final group on Sunday so that walking down the 18th when he's dominating the tournament, he's going to win the U.S. Open and he is just walking down the 18th fairway with 10,000 people swarming around him just for his caddy to just rip a heater right in the middle of the fairway. It would have been the greatest moment of the tournament, 100%. Seven. So there's this guy named Chris Baker, who we played a game on the DSD podcast of Golfer or No Golfer, where I tried to trick 
our buddy Cam, who actively watches golf, into figuring out whether guys were or were not golfers. He did not know Chris Baker was a golfer. And for some strange reason, I got to see like four holes of Chris Baker because that was the group that we happened to be following to move up the course to watch Lee Westwood and see Richard Bland's caddy rip a fat heater on the sixth fairway and to see that cake of an ass that Adam Scott has. It just happened to be that we were following Chris Baker for a while. And so Chris Baker... I got to, I had no idea who he was coming into the tournament and I got to watch about four holes of random ass Chris Baker. And I was hitting myself towards the end because it was Mackenzie Hughes, a guy who had been cut in the last five tournaments that he played was in the final group of the day with Louis Oosthuizen tied for the lead going into the last day. And I was hitting myself like, damn it. That was the name I should have used for golfer or no golfer. By the way, check out the DSD podcast, wherever it is that you get podcasts with the link in the bio. Eight. So eventually you go to go get some food before you watch some leaders tee off. And I have to say, $3 giant cookie at the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines. Excellent. Money well spent. And this is coming off of going to a baseball game where baseball games have $15 beer and $15 tri-tip nachos at Petco Park, which, boy, did I miss those $15 nachos. I missed those $15 nachos so bad at Petco Park. But $3, giant cookie, excellent purchase at the U.S. Open, and they did not sell you short on those hot dogs. Yes, it was $8 for hot dogs and chips, but that was a big-ass hot dog. So you know what? The U.S. Open, by baseball standards, you did right by the way that you sold your uh, sold your products, although beer was still very expensive, and I did not buy any merchandise because why would I pay $40 for a T-shirt I'm never going to wear again? Nine. So we got a nice little string of three in a row right before the leaders teed off. This is where you're getting into the category of people who kind of matter, but also don't really matter. So you got Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, and Brooks Kepka right in a row. And to be honest, I just wanted to talk about Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, and Brooks Kepka. Brooks Kepka ended up making a charge up the leaderboard at the end away from where we were because we were following the people who actually had a chance to win the tournament. But what was cool was to see Brooks Kepka drive it 340 yards and to see Jordan Spieth put one in the bunker, but then save a par and all of that cool stuff that golf has. But those three, you could argue, are three of the like five to six most famous people in golf right now, at least for a new generation. And, and we'll get to Bryson in a bit. And Dustin Johnson has obviously been a big name in the past. But I mean, those three in a row are the ones that just draw a ton of attention and they're the name recogni- the recognized names. I even heard one person on the fairway accidentally called Justin Thomas Jordan Thomas because Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth are so intertwined as celebrities for golfers where even if you're someone who's like a Tiger Woods stan or a Phil Mickelson stan who you know stopped paying close attention to golf after 2010, you kind of know a little thing or two, even in a niche sport, about Jordan Spieth Justin Thomas, obviously Brooks Kepka's won like four majors. He's had the huge success. Jordan Spieth's won three, but none of them have been in the last four years. But they're the names in golf that people remember. And you got to see them one, two, three in a row because all of them were about five to six shots off the lead and happened to tee off in groups one after the other. So just a fun way to kick off your day is to see all of the three famous people 
after going an entire round of paying attention to Chris Baker and the cake of an ass on Adam Scott and Richard Bland's caddy ripping heaters. Felt good to see some famous people in there. And it's just an interesting psychological experiment with all of these niche sports, not just golf with tennis, boxing, UFC, uh, whatever other niche sport that you enjoy. Hockey, we can bring douchey hockey guy in at some point too. But yeah, there's a lot of different niche sports that make things really interesting. 10. So now we get into the real people. And it starts with the fourth to last group of John Rahm and Matthew Wolf. And John Rahm slowly but steadily comes out and first hole of the day, birdie. Second hole of the day, birdie. And you start to look up and you say, all right, John Rahm within one shot of the lead. Then he bogeys a hole, so he's back to two shots off the lead. And you're like, okay, it's a nice little start for John Rahm. But what I would come to find out later is that the U.S. Open, comparatively, there's not a lot of birdies. And I didn't take advantage at the time of the fact that John Rahm hit two birdies early on on the day, and there would not be a lot left. There'd be a lot of bogeys, but not a lot of birdies. The rest of the way. So the fact that John Rom got that one, two birdie combo right off the bat, which we got to see, but didn't really think much of it. Like, oh, good, good job. Now he's one of the seven people tied for four shots, or, or is tied within one shot of the lead at four under. You know, good on John Rom, and he's in one of the last groups, and it should be fun to watch. But little did I know when I took a video of him walking up to the sixth fairway, that same magical sixth fairway where Richard Bland's caddy ripped a giant ass heater in the middle of walking to the, his ball. Little did I know what was about to come for John Rahm. 11. So 11 represents the 11th hole, which eventually we would come up to with the magical par three. And I just want to skip forward a good few hours to that magical shot that I'm sure a lot of people have seen where Mackenzie Hughes hit a ball that got stuck in a tree, like a one in a million chance that a ball got stuck in the tree. And for people who don't know, at the tournament, they give you these little radio things that you can listen to the Sirius XM broadcast. They're like cheaply made radios. They're sponsored by American Express. And on the radio, they accidentally said, if someone knocks it out of the tree, it wouldn't be a penalty for Mackenzie Hughes. And all of a sudden, 25 people bolt right for that tree and try and start shaking that tree before golf people can come in and say, hey, stop shaking that tree, even though, again, it wouldn't be a penalty. And it would have really helped out Mackenzie Hughes because, boy, did he struggle trying to get that a negative five golfer or five under golfer, no golfer victory uh, did not work out so well for McKenzie. So that was just a fun thing that happened on 11. Also, Bryson was in the lead and then he wasn't in the lead. It was a tough little break for him there. 12. Speaking of Bryson DeChambeau, let's get to the crazy story of Bryson on the beginning of the, the day. We'll get to an even crazier story with Bryson at the end, but the DeChambros were out in full effect, and I never realized just how much Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka have kind of captivated the golf world because I had so many people make Bryson Brooks, Brooks Bryson, Bryson Brooks jokes over and over and over again. Br Bryson has captured the attentions of the people at this tournament and in the golf world. It's made people kind of crazy and cuckoo and excited over Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau, who both just hit the ball 360 yards longer than anyone's ever hit a golf ball before on the PGA Tour. 
and both of them have won championships and they're recognizable faces. And Bryson's going to go collect $10 million to go play with Aaron Rodgers in the next few days in the match. So Bryson had a cult following show up for his round, as did the next person we'll talk about at 13. No, 13. Yeah, 13. Louis Oostazen. The large South African and Australian following was all in on Louis Oostazen in the final group, making his charge up the end. 14. Rory McIlroy, second to last group. A lot of people came out in favor of Rory McIlroy. A lot of people came out in John Rahm. It was crazy to see that discrepancy where you had John Rahm playing and you had a guy in an American flag or an American flag shirt holding a Spanish flag, which was quite confusing. But you had the huge John Rahm following, huge Rory McIlroy following, huge DeChambro following, and it was crazy that all three of them were in di- and Louis Oosthuizen, and those were the last four groups. And those were the people everyone was out for, mostly because they weren't out for Mackenzie Hughes or Russell Henley, but also just large swaths of people that just wanted to follow those groups all day. And I was just thinking the whole way, imagine if you had had Rory and Bryson together, because that would have been a shit show of a group towards the end of the day. 15. Chaos breaks out after... (laughs) After we move from seven to eight and Bryson DeChambeau hits a shot within a golf ball of the cup. We got to see it from the bottom of the hill. Bryson hits a shot within a golf ball of going in. He taps in to get it to a birdie. And we're like, okay, Bryson's in the lead. He's at five. But then everything starts switching because then Paul Casey, who was two shots off bogeys, Colin Morikawa birdies. He's now at four under. Uh, another guy birdies. He's at four under. Mackenzie Hughes birdies. He's at three under. This all happened within like four minutes. And we're like scrambling from seven to eight and back to seven. And then trying to look at the scoreboard on eight and see, oh no, now Paul Casey's moving down. Now Brooks is moving down. Now, um, well, we mentioned Morikawa a second ago. Now Bryson's at, at three. And now John Rahm's at four. Look at that. John Rahm, two minutes later, he just hit a birdie. Okay, craziness. Okay, let's calm down here. So now the entire leaderboard has flipped. Bryson's at five. Everyone else is at four. There's a bunch of people at three. And we're thinking that this is going to be a DeChambro runaway. And everything just starts going crazy after what we thought was the shot of the day. 16. So now we're at hole 10. We're camped out. We're going to watch John Rom come up. We're going to watch Rory McIlroy come up. We're going to watch DeChambro, which, by the way, kind of kind of got DeChambro a little bit the people were overwhelmingly positive, but DeChambeau is kind of the heel of golf now. So he's kind of got this this anger towards him. But anyways, DeChambeau comes up, Louis Oostazen comes up, and you kind of camp out at 10 and just watch and see how this is going to go. And it's like par, 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 and then Louis Oostazen. About a 10-foot shot. He's five under. Brooks, I'm sorry, Bryson's at five under. There's a bunch of people at four. Bryson's over on that same 11th hole we just mentioned that McKenzie hit it in a tree. He shanks the first shot. He ends up with a bogey. And Louis Oostazen, with me almost in the camera shot, hits a beautiful shot right up, sink it, and Louis Oostazen gets to six as Bryson gets to four. 
He's up two strokes and everyone's like, oh my gosh, did we just witness the shot of the day here at 10? Bigger than Bryson, hitting it within one foot of the cup. Louis stays in the birdie putt as Bryson bogeys. He's up two shots. Everyone starts fading. Morikawa has a double bogey. Brooks has a double bogey. Everyone, or yeah, everyone starts fading from the leaderboard real quick. 17. I can't explain the pandemonium of watching Louis Oosthuizen bogey to get to five, and all of a sudden, John Rahm starts a charge. 18. John Rahm birdies. Birdies. Goes from three under to five under. Par. Par save. And he moves up to 18. And at this moment, you go from following Louie, Rory McIlroy, who's just bogeyed back-to-back holes, so now he's out of contention, and all of a sudden, you are sprinting up the 18th fairway to get a glimpse of John Rahm, who is now tied at 5-under with Louie Oosthuizen, who's about four holes ahead of John Rahm, but everyone else is falling off the board. Mackenzie Hughes has played terrible. Russell Henley has been gone for a long time. Rory McIlroy's playing terribly. Uh, Brooks is in the locker room. He's done. Uh, not good enough to win. Everything's going crazy right now. And John Rahm hit birdie, birdie, par, par. Drops a shot on 18, about 20 feet from the cup. And you get the shot of the day and i'll play this sound effect obviously it's better with the video but this is live in the gallery when john rom hits that magical putt to get to six under that would ultimately be about an hour later the shot of the tournament Twenty. John Rom goes in at six, and it's a mad dash to find Louis Ustazen, who's currently finishing up the fifteenth hole. You run right past Rory, right past the DeChambro. It is a straight sprint to try and find Louis Ustazen. Twenty-one. On the thirteenth hole, just before this. One of the I, I talked about the great moment of Richard Bland's caddy smoking a heater, but then we had the greatest moment of the entire tournament. Bryson DeChambeau, who is just bogeyed to go to three under, is on the 13th hole par five in the fairway when all of a sudden a streaker charges onto the fairway with a stolen golf club 
and a bunch of golf balls and just starts chipping, chipping, chipping balls into the canyon. And it's a golf course, so the security is not as tense as a as like a baseball game where they can kind of get people down and there's way more space to navigate. So this guy gets about a minute to hit golf balls around. He hit about four or five, then runs away from security. And the way that they bring him down, 22, is by hitting him with the golf cart and having police tackle him on the course. They drove up a golf cart to cut him off. They accidentally hit him with the golf cart and he goes down and the police arrest him. This took about four minutes after DeChambeau already had to wait for the group ahead of him to finish the hole. Bryson ends up shanking that shot, double bogeying the hole. So now he's out of contention. Triple, I'm sorry, quadruple bogeys another hole. Just a utter collapse. And bogeyed another before a bunch of pars. So Bryson DeChambeau finished plus seven after the streaker ran on the course. Six holes, six holes the rest of the way. Shot plus seven on six holes, which is one of the worst stretches. of go- Like amateur golfers shoot that. Few mistakes here and there. He shot plus seven on the final six holes after the streaker ran on the field or ran on the, the, the fairway, hit a bunch of golf balls got hit by a car, hit by a golf cart, and Bryson DeChambeau has a collapse after that. Now, is there a cause correlation there? No, probably not. But it still was the highlight of my day to be watching Bryson on 13 right before his collapse and just streaker. Streaker on the on the field, streaker on the fairway, getting a video of him getting hit by a golf cart and getting a video of him being arrested and walking away laughing sarcastically about loving everyone. I love that guy so much. By the way, check out Comical Sports Memes on Instagram if you want to see the video of that. 23. So Bryson's gone. John Rahm's hit his birdie on 18 to create a ruckus of a crowd. And now we're chasing down Louis Oosthuizen. Louis Oosthuizen... After running half a mile to catch him on the 16th green, saves a par that gets the crowd that for some reason I thought would be following him more because that was the leader group, but not as many people on 16. Louis Oosthuizen knocks down a par save to stay one shot back of John Rahm, headed to 17, 24. Louis Oosthuizen shanks his shot on 17 into the gallery. As I'm running by the shot on the other side, he hits it to the left, I'm on the right. Shanks it into the gallery. I'm sorry, no, this is, uh, sorry, this is, th- this is before this. So this is 14. On 14, Louis Oosthuizen shanks a shot into the gallery. And in that moment, I am running straight up to that golf ball, waiting for John Rahm And I am just standing there, just standing there. And there's a crowd surrounding around, surrounding him. 
I coulda, shoulda, woulda been on TV. My brother got on TV, which is pretty cool. But I chose to stand right next to the CB or the NBC video camera. Just the t- the angle you were seeing on TV. Just know I was standing directly to the right of the TV guy. I have a selfie too that is probably going to be cool forever. But Louis stays, and I was hoping it would be like an all time great shot. But Louis stays and shoots one on the green at. 14 saved par after shanking his first shot and if he had won the tournament it would have been a video played over and over and over for the rest of time that i was standing right next to the camera for i got a selfie with louis 25 back to 17 louis shanks his shot we're running up the fairway to try and be even he has to take a free relief and that ends up being the dooming of his tournament until his third shot and he's down one with two to play drops right next to the cup about six feet of roll so he's about eight feet away 26 with everyone crowding around except for the large mass of people surrounding 18 although the big moment at 18 would end up being john rom's putt that we got to see at 18 Louis Ustazen misses the 8 to 10 foot putt to keep it a one to one putt, keep him down one on the easiest hole of the course coming up on 18. Louis now down two with one to play, has to get an eagle. 27? Louis Ustazen goes over to 18. Crowds of people swarming. Now you've got nine to ten to eleven thousand people all crowding around this one fairway. Again, I'm double vaccinated. Crowding around this fairway and green. People sitting in trees, which is one of the coolest moments that I saw. I was like, damn, that's a good ass idea to sit in a tree on the fairway. Had he been the one to win the tournament, we would have had people storming the fairway and crowding around Louie. Although he didn't end up winning, so unfortunately we didn't get that moment. Louis hit his first shot in the rough, couldn't get it over the water, so now he's got to chip in for the win. And we're all thinking to ourselves, crazier things have happened, crazier things have happened, crazier things have happened. 28. Louis Eustazen was not going to be able to get the ball to the green, which might have given him a better chance to win the tournament or force a playoff down two shots, needing a three needing three shots to win. So he hits his first shot in the fairway and then he lays up on his second. So now he has to chip in to keep the tournament going. And this is a huge debate in sports all the time. Do you go for the win or do you just do you go for the win is winning all that matters? Or is it that you just play the result in the process and see what, or play the process out and see what the results are. Now, Louis was never going to be able to get the shot to the green, but you could point to people who saw him lay up and say, you are a coward. (laughs) You should have taken that shot for the win and winning is all that matters. But I don't think winning is all that matters in that case. And Louis played his odds on I can chip it in better than I can scream a drive that might go in the water and give me no chance to win but maybe it'll get to the green, roll past the green, and I can chip in for the win. So either way, I'm going to have to chip in 
I might as well take my chances in front on a longer chip. It's a minuscule chance anyways, but I'm going to play it safe and not risk hitting it in the water, bogeying, and losing some money. Or just not playing the result, finishing second, not playing the result, and just saying we went through the process and it wasn't quite good enough. And to be honest, if he had not hit the ball out of bounds on the hole before, the process would have been good enough. It's one shot. Any one shot could have made a difference, not just his laying up on 18. 28. Louie ends up putting the ball right about seven feet from the cup, would sink his birdie putt, get to five, but John Rahm would be the winner. From the fourth group back, John Rahm wins the tournament. 29. John Rahm is one of many guys on the string of weird golf, like top 20 golfers in the world. He's, I think he's ranked like number four in the world right now. But this string of really good golfers who have won their first major recently. You could go to Colin Morikawa. You could go to Bryson DeChambeau. You could go to Hideki Matsuyama. Uh, recent, these are the really recent ones. You could go to Dustin Johnson winning his first and ultimately then winning his second. You could go to Justin Thomas winning his first major after being a name in golf for a really long time. And John Rahm, I, mean, I could go back further after that, but John Rahm continues this recent trend of first-time champion golfers who we've known their name for a while, and he ends up being the grand champion that is the last man standing at the end of a tournament that took a lot out of him, and John Rahm wins at Torrey Pines. 30, even though... I found out that those speeches they give at the end are only picked up on television microphones and you can't actually hear what they're saying on the golf course. So you just have a spattering of people in the crowd not knowing what's being said, just yelling at John Rahm like COVID got nothing on you. Because remember, John Rahm is the guy who tested positive for COVID like three weeks ago when he was up six in six strokes in a tournament and was forced to, to back out over his COVID withdrawal. But he gets the grander prize of winning the U.S. Open afterwards. 31. They tried to do a Blue Angels flyover because San Diego is the Air Force hub. They've got a lot of those planes out there at the Miramar Airfield. It's a big Navy presence in San Diego. They wanted to do a flyover, but the flyover got rerouted. And so about 40 seconds after they had intended, or about a minute after, the flyover came back around and they said, okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, we're going to stop this NBC broadcast because now we have the flyover ready to go. And it was just excellent, excellent to see them say, here is this magical flyover. And everyone turns around, no flyover, nothing. 32, which reminds me of the greatest moment in the history of my childhood, which was when I was about 12, 11, 12 years old. On 4th of July, they set off all the fireworks at one time in San Diego in an accidental 12-second magical explosion of fireworks that just went boom, 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 And I remember for 12 seconds just standing there and saying, this is the greatest fireworks show in the history of fireworks shows. And then it was over. And still to this day, and probably for the rest of my life, Every fireworks show 
cannot be topped by that magical fireworks show when I was 11, 12 years old. All of this to say, this is San Diego. San Diego is going to do everything just slightly worse, slightly off tune, slightly off time, but still make it look pretty cool in the end. 33, I would highly recommend to everyone who goes to, it lives near some sort of golf tournament. I would highly recommend going to a golf tournament, recommend going to a major Recommend doing something cool like that in your time because the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines, my hometown, I don't live here anymore, but I'm here for about a week or two. To have that experience was really, really fascinating, really, really fun, and I would not trade it for the world. I'm glad that the once in every 15 years that I'll get to go to a U.S. Open that I did that experience in my local golf course the one that's public i can play that golf course with a residence card it costs a lot of money but i can technically play it would highly recommend everyone have some sort of major championship level experience in whatever niche sport that they very much enjoy so that has been 33 points of my live coverage from the 2021 golf u.s open at Torrey Pines in beautiful San Diego, California. Cannot recommend the experience enough. Even if you don't like golf, do it in whatever niche sport that you root for because the experience was lifetime. It was a lifetime memory at Torrey Pines. So I would highly recommend it over and over to everyone who has the means and the opportunity to attend that tournament. I'm fortunate enough to have the means to do something of that sort and the opportunity presented itself when it did because it hasn't been in San Diego in 15 years. Probably won't be back for another 15 years. So I'm glad that I got that moment and that memory to enjoy it by. That's our show for today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for stopping in here. Make sure to follow, download, Leave a five-star review. Doesn't have to be a nice review. Just needs to be a five-star review. Check out our YouTube, our radio show, the DSD podcast, and follow us on Instagram as well. Also, if you're into hockey, start mentally preparing yourselves for a Montreal Canadiens-New York Islanders Stanley Cup final that I don't think any of us are ready for, given that Tampa Bay and Vegas are very clearly the best teams left in the NHL. But you know what? It's hockey. It's totally random, and we might be on our way to another Game 7 here tonight if the Vegas Golden Knights can head up north and secure a victory versus a rockin' Montreal Canadiens empty stadium. Thank you, everybody, for stopping in, and as always, take it easy. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.